Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. In 1883, a well-connected young politician and writer from New York named Theodore Roosevelt ventured west into the Dakota Territory to shoot buffalo, knowing full well of their growing scarcity upon the American plains. He suffered, tired, and hungry for many days before finally meeting a single bison bull grazing upon a hill. Roosevelt later wrote, As I rose above the crest of the hill, the bison held up his head and cocked his tail in the air. Before he could go off, I put the bullet in behind his shoulder. The future governor of New York and the future president of the United States had killed one of the last remaining American bison at a moment when the animal was on the brink of extinction. This near obliteration of a creature which has become a symbol of the United States is explored in the new film, The American Buffalo, directed by this week's guest, Ken Burns. This is an animal that roamed, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 million, uncountable numbers. And by the end of the 1880s, middle of the 1880s, there are fewer than a thousand, and most of them are in zoos or private collections, only a handful running wild and free. Roosevelt himself later wrote, Never before in all history were so many large wild animals of one species slain in so short a space of time. But while he would never lose his passion for hunting, Theodore Roosevelt would eventually lead the cause in saving the buffalo, both through his actions as president and through institutions he would champion, including the Bronx Zoo. And one of the greatest scenes in any film I've ever made in almost 50 years of doing this is the fact that in order to seed the stock of whatever buffalo are going to be at the Wichita Mountains, where the Kiowas believe the original buffaloes came out of the largest promontory called by white people Mount Scott, we ship from the largest city on the continent buffaloes back out to their new old home. The Bowery Boys episode 418... Theodore Roosevelt's Wild Kingdom. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Now, first of all, I just wanted to say that Tom will finally be back on the show starting next episode. And if you look at your calendars, you can probably guess what the subject of that show will be. But this week, we're on to Theodore Roosevelt, 
who's shown up in various episodes in the past as New York's police commissioner, as the governor of New York, and of course, as president of the United States. But today we'll be looking at Roosevelt in a different way, in a more narrow way, as one of America's great conservationists, a man whose advocacy for wildlife and public land has helped preserve so much of the natural richness of this country. On subjects of conservation, his viewpoints were sometimes very forward-thinking. In 1908, Roosevelt said in a speech, We have become great because of the lavish use of our resources, but the time has come to inquire seriously what will happen when our forests are gone, when the coal, the iron, the oil, and the gas are exhausted, when the soils have still further impoverished and washed into the streams, polluting the rivers, denuding the fields, and obstructing navigation, unquote. But Roosevelt was also a hunter. I would even say America's most famous hunter. Over his lifetime, he would kill thousands of creatures from dozens of species. And there's a good chance you've seen a few of his creatures with your very own eyes, especially if you visited the American Museum of Natural History on the Upper West Side or the Smithsonian Natural History Museum in Washington, D.C. Roosevelt was a hunter-naturalist. Now, this is how author Thomas L. Alther describes that. Quote, Combining respect and scientific and aesthetic appreciation for nature and nostalgia for what they considered purer, wilder hunting in the past with the moral imperatives of gentlemanliness, the hunter-naturalist championed and amplified the general code of sporting ethics called sportsmanship. They viewed hunting as the best mode of environmental perception, the truest appreciation and apprehension of nature's ways and meanings. It might sound counterintuitive, but much of what we know about the animal world today came from hunter-naturalists of the past. But this is not just a story of Roosevelt's connection to the entire animal kingdom, but also to one particular animal whose fate is invariably linked with Theodore Roosevelt. Now, I don't mean the bull moose, which he would be associated with politically, or the bear, a beast he would be closely tied to amid the other toys in our nursery. And I don't mean the elephants, which he shot and are now prominently displayed for the joy of thousands of schoolchildren. And I don't mean the many horses or rabbits who were the beloved pets of the Roosevelts, nor do I mean Roosevelt's bull terrier Pete, who, according to the National Park Service, once sank his teeth into so many legs that he had to be exiled to the Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Theodore Roosevelt was born on October 27, 1858, on the second floor of a charming townhouse on East 20th Street, born into an old New York family who traced themselves all the way back to the days of New Amsterdam. Since then, the family had splintered into equally powerful and politically opposed branches. Theodore was a member of the Oyster Bay Roosevelts, situated on Long Island, the Hyde Park Roosevelts, along the Hudson River, would welcome their own future president, a boy named Franklin, about a quarter century later. Theodore, or Teedy, 
was born into wealth. His father, Theodore Sr., was an importer and a prominent philanthropist who went on to found several charitable organizations in the city and, despite no political inkling, was forefront in the building of many New York institutions. He was also frequently seen on horseback in Central Park. Theodore Jr., however, was quite sick as a child, weak, asthmatic, and frequently a fever. He was also mischievous, ornery, and no stranger to trouble. What was such a boy to do, frequently supervised and unable to go outside? He retreated to his father's bookshelves, gravitating both to adventure books and eventually to illustrated scientific volumes of natural history. His uncle Robert, who lived next door, was an avid fisherman and naturalist, providing a literal bevy of fishtails to him. So, in a way, Theodore was destined to be captivated by the natural world here. It often walked right through the door of their brownstone on East 20th Street. When he was seven years old, while at market, he spotted a dead seal laid out on a slab of wood. He became obsessed with it, returned to the market to study it, and ran home to fill a journal with its imagined story and biology. His natural history books were illustrated, but they were rarely filled with photography. So even seeing this dead animal on the street would have filled him with curiosity. Eventually, he secured the seal's skull and, employing the help of his siblings and two cousins, by the following year, T.D. began creating his own collection of specimens, a death menagerie of wonders that he called the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. It became one of the more unusual childhood homes of the Gilded Age, as Teddy began collecting all sorts of miniature examples of flora and fauna. A collection of 12 ragtag objects soon grew to the hundreds. Many were obtained as living specimens, and when they died, they continued on through taxidermy created by the boy himself. He wrote to his nurse, press plenty of plants and leaves and get a good many seeds and some beetles and butterflies and get feathers and wood too. The household staff would soon complain and protest. One balked, How can I do the laundry with a snapping turtle tied to the leg of the sink? This cabinet of curiosity soon grew to include international specimens. On a family trip to Egypt, Edmund Morris writes, Teddy was determined to treat his visit to the Nile as a scientific expedition, and he had already printed a quantity of pink labels for the identification of specimens, unquote. He returned to New York with almost 200 birds for his collection. As a bookish son of a prominent New York businessman, young Teddy Roosevelt had access to the natural world which surrounded the Gilded Age mansions and estates of those in his social class. None were more influential than the family estate in Oyster Bay, on the north shore of Long Island. Now adorned with spectacles, Teddy could now explore the woods and the shoreline, and for the very first time, he could see the spectacular markings of sandpipers, cormorants, and grebes. His childhood friend Walt McDougall later wrote, quote, 
An eagle flew over us, high above, but I could not see the bird until Teddy offered me his spectacles. Such things were then rarely worn by youngsters. Teddy informed me that I was nearsighted and generously bestowed upon me a lens from a broken pair of his. Now, maybe this fleeting collection would be just an oddity in Roosevelt's biography, if not for the fact that one floor down from this slithering, crawling, makeshift museum, an actual natural history museum was being formed. The Theodore Roosevelt Birthplace National Historic Site is a replica of his original childhood home, but one can still imagine this scenario in 1869. Teddy, a 10-year-old boy, staring through the banister at the closed door of the parlor room, where his father had gathered with trustees, including a man named Albert S. Bickmore, to formally create a brand new and visionary institution for New York. In 1784, the portrait painter Charles Wilson Peale opened his American Museum in Philadelphia, hoping to raise the new country's profile in the sciences and to bond the founding of the new nation with the discoveries of the natural world. However, by the mid-19th century, such patriotism had been usurped by the sensational. The country's most famous museum belonged to P.T. Barnum. His American museum near City Hall, containing natural history wonders mixed with sideshow attractions and fictional oddities presented as real. In its basement were living examples of marine life, including some acquired by Alfred S. Bickmore. Aquatic creatures which, in the summer of 1865, boiled in their tanks when the entire museum burnt down. Bickmore and many other leading naturalists thought New York should have a proper natural history museum, not a freak show like the Barnum Institution. And so here in the parlor of the Roosevelt home, the details of that museum were laid out. On April 6, 1869, the governor of New York signed the legislation to charter this museum. And here in the Roosevelt parlor, that institution became a reality. The American Museum of Natural History. Young Theater was there at its very beginning. The museum's first home was in the Arsenal Building in Central Park. Today, that's adjacent to the Central Park Zoo. The boy would accompany his father as the exhibits were first being arranged here. Hundreds of thousands of taxidermied birds, fish, reptiles, and mammals. According to author Darren Lund, quote, Wishing to contribute, Theodore made an early donation of his own. An annual report records the acquisition of one bat, 12 mice, one turtle, a red squirrel skull, and four bird's eggs, unquote. It was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Even as Roosevelt, the young man, would refocus his life towards politics, he would continue to indulge his passions of natural history here. And the museum, meanwhile, would be associated with a rising political star. The museum would find a permanent home facing into Central Park on a city-owned lot called Manhattan Square. Its first structure, 
designed by Calvert Vox and Jacob Rimmold, Mould, opened in 1877. Roosevelt would eventually disperse his homebound Roosevelt Museum of Natural History, and some specimens would make their permanent home at New York's Natural History Museum, including a beautiful snowy owl, which Roosevelt mounted in 1876, perched in the hall, which is now the Theodore Roosevelt State Memorial. But Roosevelt's collections were just beginning to grow, and they would present him with both a challenge and an opportunity to forever change the fate of America's wildlife. We venture further into Theodore Roosevelt's wild kingdom after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Ken Burns is, of course, one of the most successful nonfiction filmmakers working today exploring American history subjects thematically in film series such as The Civil War, Baseball, Jazz, The National Parks, and so many more. His latest project this year is a story of an animal, the American buffalo, 
and the animal's unique connection to the United States and how it was nearly driven to extinction. So, being an unconventional topic for a film, my first question to him was a tad unconventional. Well, I want to start with a kind of an easy one. Most of us will never get to be close to a buffalo. I assume that you've gotten close to several in the filmmaking process here. Just what is it like to be close to a buffalo? What is it like to touch a buffalo? Well, first of all, no one should touch a buffalo. No, it's okay. (laughs) uh, Unless that buffalo is behind a fence. Okay. They are wild animals and they're incredibly dangerous and they're magnificent. That's Mm -hmm. the important thing to say. I remember a boy seeing, being a boy and seeing a buffalo in a zoo, and it was just transfixing to be out on the plains and see them. Amazing to be at Yellowstone where everybody's waiting for Old Faithful to go off and all of a sudden a couple of bulls walk into the area and it's beautiful. They seem to contain in their eyes the history that they've seen. It's been a complicated, it's been a tragic, it's been at times uplifting, it's been an amazing Mm -hmm. relationship for 600 generations between them and native peoples. They coexist sort of together. Uh, for the last 10, 12,000 years. And so it's an amazing animal. It's the largest land mammal in North America. And it's our, officially over the last decade or so, the national mammal of the United yeah. States. The first part of the American Buffalo miniseries presents the expansion of the United States in the 19th century from a different perspective. As settlers filled the plains, as the railroads radiated over cleared landscape shore to shore, As land was farmed, as frontier towns grew into cities, the roots of the United States are being founded, but at the cost of those who already lived upon the land, and in many ways at the cost of the land itself. So we're into manifest destiny. We Mm -hmm. think we've inherited this continent. It's ours to take and use as we want. So there's not a river that we don't look at and think, damn. There's not a stand of trees that we don't look at and think bored feet. There's Mm -hmm. not a canyon that we look at and think what mineral wealth could be extracted, destroying the natural beauty of it. And there's not an animal that the industrial story of America doesn't need to kill. And settlers who need to get out predators and native peoples who need to be shoved out of the way. By 1833, bison, or American buffalo, were already extinct east of the Mississippi River and their days were numbered as white settlers moved westward. This is an animal that roamed, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 million uncountable numbers. And by the end of the 1880s, middle of the 1880s, there are fewer than a thousand, and most of them are in zoos or private collections, only a handful running wild and free. That's how close we got to losing the most magnificent mammal on our continent. And so, you know, the story is, is complex with lots of undertow. Mm -hmm. And and it makes for a really good story because the story of the buffalo intersects not only with all Native people, but with us and our impulses, Mm -hmm. both good and bad. Their impending demise came not only because they stood in the way of newly arriving white settlers, and not only because of the value of their hides and their meat, but because of their specific relationship to the Native people who already lived here. Indigenous tribes not only use the carcasses of bison in a more comprehensive way, they also consider the animals sacred. 
slaughtering buffalo herds with abandon meant starving out and destroying tribes. In 1867, a U.S. Army man ordered his troops to, quote, kill every buffalo you can. Every buffalo dead is an Indian gone. At the heart of most Native Americans' relationship to the buffalo is not just its use as a sustainable from the tail to the snout animal, and our wanton slaughter was just stealing the hides and leaving the carcasses to rot, but a spiritual relationship. They saw the buffalo as kin, whereas we see ourselves as kind of the dominant species and we're disconnected from anything else. I think our love of the buffalo comes from the recognition that for some people, it is a legitimate part of their spiritual practice, that it is part of their creation stories, that it is fully a part of their lives and that we missed that mm-hmm. and that we missed it big time in, in a horrible, nearly catastrophically uh, tragic way. So with all of this in mind, I want to take you to Clark's Tavern in New York. Now that's on West 23rd Street on the perimeter of the Tenderloin, where there was a jovial wine-filled meeting of the Free Trade Club who were hosting Theodore Roosevelt a newly elected member of the New York State Assembly. Roosevelt was now a healthy, politically ambitious 25-year-old, a star in ascendance, a man who would make very few political stumbles, although when he did, they were seismic. He was also married to the socialite Alice Hathaway Lee, living in a Fifth Avenue brownstone and venturing out to Oyster Bay during the warmer months, where he would eventually build his estate home Sagamore Hill. It was at this party at Clark's Tavern that Roosevelt met Naval Officer Henry Honeychurch Gorringe, a Freemason who just a couple years earlier had engineered the delivery of an ancient Egyptian obelisk from Alexandria to Central Park. That is today's Cleopatra's Needle near the Metropolitan Museum. Roosevelt had just written a naval history book the first of dozens of books that he would pen over his life. So they had a lot to talk about. Gorringe invited Roosevelt to join him on a hunting expedition to the Dakota Badlands, where he could hunt bear, sheep, and antelope to his heart's content. And of course, buffalo, quote, while there were still buffalo left to shoot. Gorringe would eventually flake out, but Roosevelt went anyway. And in September of 1883, he and a local guide named Joe Ferris were scouring the challenging landscape looking for trophies. Because of his spectacles, he would be scoffed at by local cowboys. And Roosevelt soldiered through several misadventures and dire conditions to at last kill a lone bison bull. Following the kill, Roosevelt whooped and hollered, danced around the animal, then at last cut off the animal's head, a trophy destined to hang at Sagamore Hill. He would eventually become so enamored of the Badlands that he actually bought and operated a cattle ranch. In modern terms, you might say he was developing his brand, an East Coast politician distinguished by rugged, manly pursuits, the gentleman hunter with the knowledge of a naturalist. In 1885, he would publish a book of adventures called Hunting Trips of a Ranchman, where he would regale readers with experiences of the animal world. Grizzlies, wolves, waterfowl, deer, antelope, elk, 
mountain sheep, and, of course, bison. It's in this volume that he confronts the animal's impending extinction. Quote, While the slaughter of the buffalo has been in places needless and brutal, and while it is to be greatly regretted that the species is likely to become extinct, and while, moreover, from a purely selfish standpoint, many, including myself, would rather see it continue to exist as the chief feature in the unchanged life of the Western wilderness. Yet, on the other hand, it must be remembered that its continued existence in any numbers was absolutely incompatible with anything but a very sparse settlement of the country, and that its destruction was the condition precedent upon the advance of white civilization in the West, and was a positive boon to the more thrifty and industrious frontiermen, unquote. But this dour and obliterating outlook reflected not only his opinions of America's disappearing wildlife, but his views of the native people who also lived here. As Ken explained to me in our interview, Theodore Roosevelt, who we consider one of the fathers of conservation, had really retrograde ideas in the beginning, still for most of his life sees native peoples as savages. He certainly felt a kind of white man's burden, the noblesse oblige, and saw them as lesser form. But for him, he says, it's sort of sad that we're going to lose the buffalo, but it's going to help us with our Indian problem. Roosevelt's book received some good reviews. The New York Tribune raved, His natural history observations add a wonderful charm and interest to the book. But not everyone was so charmed, however, with Forest and Stream magazine providing a more mixed review. Quote, We are sorry to see that a number of hunting myths are given as fact. Unquote. In a moment of passion, Roosevelt charged down to the magazine's offices on Park Row. Now, far from a nasty row, the encounter that was about to happen would mark the start of a unique friendship, for the writer of that review happened to be one of America's great advocates for conservation, George Bird Grinnell. Grinnell was born in Brooklyn, but grew up in a wild corner of Upper Manhattan known as Audubon Park, owned by the family of the great naturalist John James Audubon. Its natural beauty entranced young Grinnell. He said, quote, In the early days of Audubon Park, almost nothing was seen of what in later days was called improvement. The field and woods were left in a state of nature, unquote. He would grow up to become a leading anthropologist, a naturalist in the tradition of Audubon himself. In fact, later on in 1895, Grinnell would found a bird conservation organization in the man's name, the Audubon Society. Through the magazine Forest and Stream, Grinnell helped draw attention not only to the evaporating wilderness and the depletion of natural species, but man's specific involvement in those disappearances. Grinnell and Roosevelt became fast friends, and the naturalist would become central to Roosevelt's evolving understanding of the natural world. To be a responsible hunter and an influential leader, you've also got to be an informed conservationist. Grinnell is one of the many heroes highlighted in Ken Burns' miniseries. 
And so what happens is when the buffalo dwindle to nothing, Theodore Roosevelt has, through the agency of George Bird Grinnell, an original, genuine hero in this, a great conservationist, they become friends. You know, Grinnell keeps a skull in his office, a buffalo skull. Of course, TR has got at Sagamore Hill some buffalo heads, so it tells you the difference between them. The conservation movement starts out among hunters who want to continue to hunt, not just kill them all. In December, Roosevelt hosted a dinner at his home at 689 Madison Avenue, announcing with Grinnell the formation of the Boone and Crockett Club. Now, while it was indeed a hunting club, one of the club's objectives was literally, quote, to promote manly sport with the rifle. But it was also something more ambitious. As author Michael Punk described it, quote, the first ever organization to be formed with the explicit purpose of affecting national legislation on the environment. The Boone and Crockett Club would guide Roosevelt's views on the natural world through his meteoric rise in American politics. He became the New York Police Commissioner in 1895, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1897, leader of the Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War in 1898, the Governor of New York in 1899, the Vice President of the United States in 1901, and finally, at the end of that year, into the White House itself. We'll get to President Theodore Roosevelt's Wild Kingdom and the rest of my interview with Ken Burns after this. On September 14, 1901, 42-year-old Theodore Roosevelt, the vice president of the United States, was hiking through the Adirondacks, the New York mountain range that he had loved since his childhood. At noon that day, he surveyed the state of his birth from a rock outcropping on the summit of Mount Marcy, then hiked down to a small lake called Tear of the Clouds. While eating lunch, he was approached by a ranger who frantically handed him a telegram, which read, The president appears to be dying. In fact, President William McKinley had already passed that very morning, dead from an assassin's bullet. Theodore Roosevelt was now the 26th president of the United States and the nation's youngest president. And with him came some revolutionary ideas about the federal government's relationship with the landscape, the birds, and the beasts of the United States. In a way, the country was well represented with an outdoorsman as president. Hunting was considered a gesture of patriotism. To quote from historian Daniel Justin Herman, simply put, to hunt in the Gilded Age was to define oneself as American while simultaneously defining oneself too as an equal of English aristocrats, unquote. But it was often considered a wealthy man's pursuit until the era of Roosevelt, 
with urban men seeking the masculine thrill of the outdoors, popularized by showmen like Buffalo Bill, romanticized in popular fiction, and conveniently packaged by outdoor brands like L.L. Bean and Abercrombie & Fitch, which was founded in New York in the year 1892. This craze of hunting and the ease of hunting, the result was mass overhunting, mostly unregulated as we enter the 20th century here, bringing many animals to the brink of extinction, most notably the passenger pigeon, being depleted by hunting and deforestation. But it's not merely the fault of just the Roosevelt wannabes here. New York at the turn of the century was a landscape of dead animals, Society women enrobed in the furs of dozens of different animals often wore hats adorned with feathers. According to a 1910 Brooklyn Daily Eagle article, quote, The millinery that has been introduced for this autumn and coming winter is marked by the conspicuous use of birds, breasts, and wings of every designation. Despite the protests of Audubon societies, Whole birds appear on many of the new hats, and breasts and wings are utilized in every possible form of trimming, unquote. Now, that finely dressed woman might find herself at Delmonico's or Sherry's or one of New York's other fine eateries, and there enjoy a bowl of terrapin soup. The terrapin in America was nearly wiped out because of this dish, And then, of course, continue eating any number of rare and exotic forms of game, prized not merely for their taste, but for their rarity. But President Roosevelt's extensive natural history knowledge, combined with the influence of naturalists like George Bird Grinnell and John Muir, ensured an increasingly thoughtful and restrained approach. And that's embodied in a famous incident which occurred in the fall of 1902 when Roosevelt, while out on a hunt in Mississippi, refused to kill a bear which had been captured for him by the famed bear hunter Holt Collier. The incident was popularized in a Washington Post editorial cartoon, and the bear was rendered in this cartoon so adorably that a Brooklyn businessman named Morris Mitchum and his wife Rose quickly designed a stuffed toy bear cub and began selling it from their Bedford Stuyvesant shop. They called this Teddy's Bear. Other toy designers had similar ideas around this time, and soon teddy bears were the latest, hottest fad for children. According to one 1916 ad, quote, if you see a little girl carrying one to school, or grandma with one peeping out of her handbag, don't be surprised, that's the teddy bear fad. Roosevelt would be president until 1909 and would use the office in substantial, even revolutionary ways in order to regulate and preserve the natural abundance of the United States. The boy who had once preserved small animal specimens in his bedroom now preserved whole species and entire swaths of the American landscape, and all with the stroke of a pen. His most powerful weapon was the executive order, liberally used to save millions of acres of forest and natural wildlife, to name only a few acts during his administration. 
the creation of Crater Lake National Park, the creation of the National Forest Service, federal bird reserves such as Pelican Island, the expansion of Yellowstone National Park, the expanded protections of places like the Grand Canyon, and through the 1906 Antiquities Act, quote, for protection of objects of historic and scientific interests, Roosevelt saved many of the country's other endangered spots, such as Devil's Tower, El Moro, the Petrified Forest, the Muir Woods, and many other places. In 1910, Roosevelt said, quote, Conservation is a great moral issue, for it involves the patriotic duty of ensuring the safety and continuance of the nation. But just because there was a conservation-minded individual leading the country, it does not magically bring back those animals that have already disappeared. In national parks like Yellowstone, a small number of animals were federally protected from poachers, but these efforts were not proactive enough. Ken explains Roosevelt's motivations. Roosevelt is convinced that he now has to create a wildlife refuge, that having buffalo in Yellowstone is not enough, and having buffalo in zoos where a a disease can strike or a private collection where the disease or lightning strike could take out, it's just too vulnerable. So he creates in Oklahoma and the Wichita Mountains, big game reserve, a place. Now the question is, where are you going to get the buffalo from? At a time when there are no buffalo, you can't just go out and round up some buffalo. In 1905, Congress passed a law designating the Wichita Mountains Forest and Game Refuge in Oklahoma, a spot, quote, set aside for the protection of game animals and birds and to be recognized as a breeding place. But to breed bison, you had to get bison. The American Buffalo, Ken's miniseries, explores all of the many, many stories of people who contributed to the rescue of the bison. People rich and poor, men and women, Native American and white. And one most historic journey involves New York. It ends at the Wichita Mountain Reserves, but it begins in the Bronx. Back in 1895, Theodore Roosevelt and other members of the Boone and Crockett Club, including George Bird Grinnell, formed the New York Zoological Society, founded with three objectives, to open a zoological park, to promote the study of zoology, and to preserve wildlife. Four years later, in 1899, upon the banks of the Bronx River and adjacent to the already-opened New York Botanical Garden, the New York Zoological Park, better known as the Bronx Zoo, opened to the public. Instantly successful, the zoo focused initially only on North American animals. Among its opening displays was a small bison herd provided by William C. Whitney, who purchased the animals from a Wyoming rancher in 1897. And by the way, yes, that's the Whitney's. William was the father-in-law of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. By 1905, the zoo was ready to take a leading role in the fight for the bison. It was here in the old lion house that the American Bison Society was formed with Theodore Roosevelt as the honorary president and other members like the zoo's director, William Hornaday, 
and of course, George Bird Grinnell. What would happen next would change American history, for those Bronx bison were, in a way, going home. It's a powerful moment in Ken's film, as he describes it. And one of the greatest scenes in any film I've ever made in almost 50 years of doing this is the fact that in order to seed the stock of whatever buffalo are going to be at the Wichita Mountains, where the Kiowas believe the original buffaloes came out of the largest promontory called by white people Mount Scott and and was the center of their spiritual as well as physical and material existence, we ship from the largest city on the continent by railroad, the, the instrument that has gone in and invaded the buffalo territory and brought the hide hunters to kill them in the previous decades, we ship buffaloes back out to their new old home, we say. On October 11th, 1907, nine bison cows and six bulls would leave the Bronx Zoo in crates specially designed by Hornaday. And they would load up at the Fordham Railroad Station, the same place where thousands of people flock to the zoo today. From there, these 15 animals traveled to Oklahoma, where they were greeted by members of the Comanche and Kiowa tribes, some who were alive when the buffalo had freely roamed here decades before. Six years later, that Bronx bison herd had doubled in size. And they thrive to this day. 650 bison, which trace their lineage to this original group. This remains the largest bison refuge managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. You know, you'd be in a Hollywood trying to pitch that. Nobody would believe that. But it's just gobsmacking. What kind of journey, the reverse journey of the buffalo? Today, there are about half a million bison in the United States, thanks to the efforts of the American Bison Society and the many, many other people who are featured in Ken's film. But in Roosevelt's day, it was not clear that even these efforts would be enough. While Congress did pass its first comprehensive endangered species bill back in the year 1900, it would take decades for the rest of the public, for the mainstream, to become active in the conservation movement. In 1913, the United States comes out with the Indian head nickel. On the front is an Indian, on the back is a buffalo. A buffalo that was modeled for the sculpture in New York City and then sent to the meatpacking district to be parted out. And so in that whole creation of the nickel is this absurd kind of frustrating, fetishizing, romanticizing of two beings, the native people and the buffalo that we had just spent the last century trying to get rid of. And so we have at the heart of our national mythology this kind of bizarre response, just as we name sports teams after uh, native peoples and after animals that we've spent most of our energies trying to get rid of. What you have at the heart of it is though a recognition that we've missed something, that we took this glorious Eden that was our continent and we more or less despoiled it. We moved its original inhabitants out without a thought or a care. And we, in the greatest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world, 
We got rid of the buffalo and other things like the grizzly, the elk, things like that. The greatest slaughter of animals in the history of the world. We did. One year after the Indian head nickel was created, a passenger pigeon named Martha died at the Cincinnati Zoo. The very last passenger pigeon on Earth. The animal is now extinct. By 1913, Theodore Roosevelt was on to new adventures. He had left office in 1909 and immediately went on African safari on a mission for the Smithsonian Institute. He was joined by the taxidermist and hunter Carl Ackley, famous for his own exotic safari trophies. Visiting areas of Africa, which we know today to contain all manner of endangered species, Roosevelt and his son Kermit killed 512 animals, including lions, zebras, hippos, elephants, and more buffalo, the African kind. Today, in the American Museum of Natural History's Ackley Hall of African Mammals, you'll find a beautiful and imposing display of eight elephants on a rampage. Two of these, the mother and the baby, were killed by Roosevelt and his son. In 1913, still smarting from a failed independent run for the presidency, under the Bull Moose Party banner, Roosevelt embarked on a final big expedition, this time to South America and the Amazon to collect animal specimens for New York's Natural History Museum. This trip nearly killed him. He returned to New York in May of 1914, weakened and depleted. From the porch at Sagamore Hill, the Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, you can hear the songbirds from the surrounding woods, and once you could even hear the sounds of cattle and horses from the barn. But there's just as much of the natural world inside the house, an array of Roosevelt's hunting trophies, as well as exotic gifts, such as a polar bear rug, gifted to the Roosevelt's by Admiral Perry. Prominent in the front hall is a statue of a rhinoceros, so disliked by Edith Roosevelt that she frequently covered it up with her gardening hat. And next to a fireplace hangs the head of the bison, which Roosevelt had shot back in the Dakota Badlands in 1883. Sagamore Hill is both homey and exotic, comfortable and a little off-putting, very much, I imagine, like its most famous occupant. On January 6, 1919, Theodore Roosevelt died here at Sagamore Hill, aged 60 years old. One of the more interesting aspects of the miniseries here, The American Buffalo, is how it centers Native American voices in the storytelling and how it delicately hints to our modern problems of preserving ecosystems. I think as we thought about this project for decades, and I'm really glad we waited because I think we got better as filmmakers. I hope we got better as filmmakers. Mm -hmm. There's new scholarship, and there's also, I think, a maturity that permitted us not to just patronize or be paternalistic about other points of views, but really cede to those other points of views and allow particularly Native American voices scholars who are Native American and to allow the story to come out. But 
Yeah, this is a parable of de-extinction, which is a good thing, but it's really only the first two acts of perhaps a three-act play. And the mm -hmm. third act is going to be written now by all of us, Native peoples who have been given more and more control over buffaloes, NGOs that are trying to set aside large enough areas in which you could have a functioning ecosystem without the fences that make them corral animals. And mm -hmm. um, that's an exciting thing to contemplate, but it ain't over yet. The story is still being written, and global warming will, in the next years, be uh, condemning to extinction many mammals and many mm -hmm. large mammals, I'm afraid. And perhaps the story of the buffalo can be not just cautionary, but inspirational. Uh, mm -hmm. Degner said, we are the most dangerous species on the planet and every other species, including the earth itself, has reason to fear us. This is how we begin <laughs> our second episode. Mm -hmm. And yet we are also the only species when we choose to save something that we can do it. So the question is a clarion call, I think, to all of us, filmmakers yes. and audience alike. What do you now do with this information that we have? What do you do <laughs> in the face of climate change and its impending doom for our children and our grandchildren. And I have grandchildren. Mm -hmm. It's scary to contemplate what their future is unless we begin to take action. And so we have in our hip pocket this story of our most magnificent animal and its relation to Native peoples and ourselves that we can pull out and use, I hope, as inspiration and mm -hmm. not as cautionary tales. Ken, that was amazing. Anyway, thank you very much and have a good evening. I really appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. It's yeah, big, cool. Thank you. Big tent. Let's all come in and, and be careful. Don't approach a buffalo and let's <laughs> fence between you and it. Come to New Hampshire. We still have a herd in New Hampshire. There was the, oh, okay. the, yeah. the Corbin herd at long since it dispersed, but there's a new herd in New Hampshire, which I went to a few weeks ago, and it was exhilarating to be in my turf. I am. I'm going to go up there this. I'm going up to New Hampshire this fall, so I'll okay. check it out. Well, thank you very much, Ken. So Ken Burns' miniseries, The American Buffalo, you all should check it out. It premieres on PBS on October 16th, 2023. And if you happen to be listening to the show after that day, well, I'm sure it is available for streaming uh, somewhere for, for forest and streaming. Is that something? Anyway, I want to thank Ken Burns for joining me today on the show. It, it was an honor that I got to interview him. Uh, and if you want to get the whole family experience, by the way, last year, Tom interviewed Ken's brother, Rick Burns, as well as James Sanders about their classic documentary series about New York City. That's episode 393. Now, if you want to go on your own exotic expedition here, there are three places in New York you can go. First, head to the Theodore Roosevelt Natural Historic Site, 28 East 20th Street, south of the Flatiron Building. I highly recommend taking a tour with one of their very knowledgeable rangers. And yes, they are rangers. This is a national historic site. Then head up to the American Museum of Natural History and walk, actually walk through Theodore Roosevelt Park before you get in, and then head down to the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Hall, with various exhibitions about Roosevelt. And last but not least, you should go to the Bronx Zoo and check out their American bison in a place of honor near the Bronx River. 
and check out their other endangered species, which are being bred here to be eventually reintroduced back into nature. Now, if you'd like to hear my entire conversation with Ken, we do go into a lot more detail, especially about that Native American uh, relationship with the bison. You can find that on patreon.com slash Bowery So you can join us there and get all sorts of audio exclusives, including our regular Patreon-only show called Side Streets. So you can hear that interview, and I think that you'll really be fascinated by it. You can find that at patreon.com slash Boys. Changing subjects from animals to ghosts, you can see Tom and I live at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater on October 27th, 30th, and 31st, 2023. That is, of course, for our live Ghost Stories of Old New York show. This is our fifth time doing it at Joe's Pub. We are so excited. And if you've never seen it and you like our Ghost Story podcasts, then you will love this. It's all the scary stuff, but it's also music and comedy. And we'll again this year feature... Andrew Austin, creating the musical soundscape, and vocalist Lisa Carlin. Get those tickets at thepublictheater.org. The show today was engineered by Casey Holford, and portions of the interview were edited by Kieran Gannon. Now, speaking of ghosts, get ready, because that is the next episode. So I'll see you then. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. (laughs) 